You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. Good morning. Good to see you guys again. And I got a question to ask you. Have you ever had an enemy? Like an enemy. Like I'm talking about that person like, I hate that guy. You know what I mean? Like, oh, if his dog goes in my front yard one more time. You know what I mean? That, like that guy or that person in your life, you just, mm. I've had some enemies. Uh, some of them uh, probably I deserved uh, to be beat up by. Others I actually was beat up by. But there's just one particular enemy, man, this, this enemy that just, oh, this enemy plagued me. Can I tell you about this enemy? It was, uh, it was my lawnmower. You ever have one of those lawnmowers that just didn't cooperate? Like, it was my enemy. Like, I couldn't stand this lawnmower. It wasn't always that way. Like, when we first met, it was, it was beautiful. Like, we were friends. We, I bought this lawnmower. All the features it had were perfect for my needs. But one day, I was mowing my grass, and clink, the blade hits this root, this tall root that's just there in the yard. And just, when it hit the root, it, like, twisted the mechanism and messed the machine all up. And, like, it never worked quite right after that. And that, that became a long painful relationship, you know, between me and the, the lawnmower eventually became my enemy. It got to the point where, like, I would go out and be like, oh, it's time to mow the grass. <sighs> I would look at the shed. I knew who was in there, right? I wanted to go in there and get the lawnmower, but did you ever watch Seinfeld? Like, I was a big Seinfeld fan, and there was that one character, Newman. Jerry Seinfeld would answer the door and be like, hello, Newman. You know what I mean? I, I would open the shed door like, lawnmower. Let's do this, right? And it wasn't just that it didn't work quite right. It's that sometimes it just didn't work at all. Like sometimes I would go to start it and it would not start. And it didn't matter what I did. I'd replace the spark plugs. I'd go in and try to, you know, fix all kinds of stuff, take it to the lawnmower mechanic. Guy's like, seems to be working just fine for me. I'm like, yeah, sure it does for you, but for me. And so it doesn't start. And so sometimes it wouldn't start. Other times it would start, but then it would stop. Like, I'm right in the middle of mowing my grass, and you know that, that day where you got, like, your grass is almost up to your knees, and you really got to get that done because the neighbors are starting to think about calling social services on your house, and, you know, there's, like, dogs missing in the neighborhood, and you think it's your fault, stuff like that's going on. So you're like, I got, I got to mow my grass, so I'm halfway through the yard feeling good, like, yeah, getting it done, good job, lawnmower, glad we worked things out, and, and it'd be done, and I'd be like, ah, and then no matter what I'll do, I couldn't start it back up. Next weekend, back, ready to go again. It would just stop. Sometimes it would just backfire like a Model T, like kapaya! And it would, sound like a, it would sound like a shotgun going off right beside my head, and my neighbors next door would hit the ground thinking it was a drive-by. It was, it was crazy. It got to the point where me and this lawnmower just couldn't work it out. It just wasn't working out between us, and so we had to break up. It's sad, but we had to break up. So uh, what I did was I moved houses. I actually moved to Wilmington to get away from this lawnmower. That's actually why I'm here in the first place. Uh, I moved to an apartment complex where these really nice guys with really nice lawnmowers mow my grass for me every time. And that enemy, that enemy lawnmower is right where he belongs, in my dad's garage. That's where it is right now to this day. So I don't know if you've had an enemy like that uh, or maybe a more serious enemy, but um, we've been in this teaching series called Life Was a Wreck 
Then I met Jesus. And we've been looking at the lives of people who, man, their life was really messed up. And then Jesus came along in the Bible, and we see the conversations Jesus had with them. And we, and we see the transformation of life that happens. Like, maybe if you were here, uh, it, it's, this is week five of that series. So maybe you were here several weeks ago, uh, over a month ago, when we met a woman uh, from Samaria. And she was a Samaritan woman from Sikar. She was socially separated and psychologically shamed. And she was uh, spiritually a sinner. Do you remember her? And we talked about her. And she kind of had a messed up life, she had a bad reputation, and she was caught in this bad cycle of shame and separation, and Jesus comes along. He meets her randomly at this well, and he shows her, man, you can have purpose. In fact, I've come to this world so that you can be connected with the love of God, and we see this woman transform before our very eyes in the story as she goes from a separated, shamed person to someone who runs to her village and tells them all about Jesus. It's amazing to see what happens when Jesus interacts with a wrecked life. The next week, we, uh, we saw a young man. Uh, we called him the rich young ruler, and he's a guy who had everything life could offer. We talked about the plate, remember, and the cafeteria of life, and he had piled it on high, man. This guy had everything life could offer. He was rich. He had youth and vitality. He had some authority and, and, and prominence in his community. But yet he comes to Jesus with this question, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Because what he was asking was, man, Jesus, I see that you're offering something better than what I can find on this earth. We also find that this guy's very religious. He seems to have everything that life can offer, but he's still not satisfied. And as Jesus meets this wrecked man's life, we learn from his story that the true path to satisfaction is through connecting with God through Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and his life was a wreck, and then he met Jesus. Or, or the next week, we meet this, this guy who's sick. He's been an invalid for 38 years, so he's just kind of unable to take care of himself, and he's laying by this pool. And it's this pool that seems to have these magical properties that heal people, but for some reason, <coughs> he's just not been getting well. Jesus comes to this guy, and he asks the guy a question, a very telling question that I posed to all of us in the room that day, and I said the same question that Jesus asked, which was, do you want to get well? Because sometimes we're surrounded by the solutions to our problems, but we just kind of like the life we're living, don't we? And we don't really want to change anything. And what we learn is that the thing about Jesus is that he changes people. Because changing people is something that Jesus is really good at. And we see this man changed spiritually and physically. He also gets the ability to walk, and, and he walks away with his mat rolled up in his hand. The next week, we met uh, another guy who was actually paralyzed as well. And we called this guy Matt because we don't know his name, but we didn't want to just call him the guy on the mat, so we called him Matt. And so Matt, we, we reached Matt as he's kind of with his friends. And what we learned from the story last week was that his friends, they were willing to do anything so that they didn't miss an opportunity to meet Jesus. And that was our first challenge, man. I can't, what do we do that keeps us away from God? And sometimes we just have all these excuses, excuses excuses. What would it take for us to go out of our way to meet Jesus? And the second thing we learned last week was, man, these guys did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. And what are we doing to make sure that our friends know about the love of Jesus? And so it's been a really cool time looking through the life of Jesus and interacting with these people that Jesus met. And so we've said life was a wreck, but then I met Jesus. So this week we wrap up the series. We could probably go on forever talking about stories of lives that Jesus has touched and changed. And we'll probably come back to this series another time. But as it were in this week, we're, we're kind of taking a shift because as you see Jesus doing good things in the world, the same thing happens to him that happens to a lot of other people that try to do good things in the world. They, they develop enemies 
There are people and institutions and situations that arise that simply do not want that good thing to continue. And so if you know anything about Jesus, maybe you've read some of the Bible, maybe you've read a lot of it, maybe you've heard about his life, you know that there were people who were totally against what Jesus was doing. And they were trying to shut him down all the time. And so he runs into all these enemies. And today, I would like to take a look at what might be a surprising enemy, but possibly one of the hardest enemies for any of us to face. As we get into that, what I want to do is just take a second to look into Jesus' life and see that as Jesus was coming and he was fixing wrecked lives, he had to first wreck something else that was wrecking some people's lives, this surprising enemy. So I'm going to start by hitting on a couple of verses in the book of John. Every week we read from the Bible here at Venture Church, we feel that, man, the, the, the answers to life's hardest and most important questions are found in the Bible. And so uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's fine. We have the scripture up on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a Bible, or maybe the Bible you do have is like kind of hard to read or, or old-fashioned, and it's, the English is something that's difficult for you to follow, we got free Bibles that we give away every week. And so if this is your first time and you haven't heard that, uh, you can grab one. Some of them are dispersed throughout the room underneath chairs, and you can also see one of our volunteers in the back after service to grab have a free Bible. So please do that. Um, we're going to be in the book of John, which is one of the four books that are explicitly about the life of Jesus, and that's near the end of the Bible in the New Testament, which is the section of the Bible about Jesus. We're going to be in John chapter 1, and let's check out this verse. Did you know that, uh, that Jesus had some nicknames? Uh, and we're going to learn one of his nicknames right now. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We're going to unpack this in just a second to see how we know that, that this is one of Jesus' nicknames. But if you look on this English translation right here, in the beginning was what? The Word, capital W. And that capital W is a very uh, kind trick that the translators have done for us, making it a proper noun. The word, Word, is a nickname for Jesus in this context. He's the very Word of God. You know, you guys can start calling me Word. I walk around the corner and people are like, what up, Word up, Word to your mother, stuff like that. Oh, maybe not. But maybe that's what they call Jesus. And Jesus was the Word. Here the Bible is claiming something very important, though. Look at this verse. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. And so we get this picture of Jesus. He is this pre-existent being who was actually involved in creation, is God, and the easiest way that I've been able to figure out how to say this is that God is God. There's only one God. There's not more than one God. Christians don't believe in more than one God. There's one God. But when God puts on skin and becomes human, you call that Jesus. That makes sense? I mean, it's hard to understand because it's God and Jesus, and that's big concepts, but that's kind of a way of understanding that. So he was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so we're going to fast forward in the same chapter to verse 14 as we find out who the Word is. Check this out. The Word became flesh. Like I just said, God put on skin. He becomes a human. The Word became flesh. He made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus puts on flesh. He leaves heaven. He comes to earth and becomes a person so that he could live among us. That's huge. That's what Christianity is all about. God making a move to come down and be with us. And that's a pretty big move. Last year I moved from uh, Charlotte to Wilmington. It was a pretty big move. Way smaller move than Jesus coming from heaven to earth. And so we have this question, like, why would God do that? Why, why would God come to earth? Like, 
isn't he God? Doesn't he kind of control things from up there like a puppeteer with strings? Like, does he really need to come down here? And, and I think there's, there's some good questions asked in that because some might say, well, maybe he came to bring truth. And that, that's true. It was in the Bible verse we just read. We saw him full of grace and truth. Maybe it was to bring grace. That's part of what Christianity is about. Yes, God bring grace. You might say Jesus came to show us who God is. Jesus came so we could have a relationship with him. And these are all reasons why Jesus, come, why Jesus comes. But what I want to get in today is the idea of the fact that there are things and people and ideas that are opposed to the fact that Jesus came. And one of them is going to be a surprising enemy that Jesus has to face. So he comes to the earth. And when he gets here, one of the first things he does when he begins his ministry on earth is to fight off this one particular enemy. We're going to look in the book of John some more. We're going to be skimming through a lot of John today just to kind of check out some of the stories of Jesus' life. John chapter 2, now in verse 1 through 11, this is what we got. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. That's your setting. Jesus is at a wedding. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? You ever feel that way with your mom sometimes? Like, Mom, come on. Like, I'm not the wine guy. Like, I don't know where the wine, maybe the delivery truck's late. I don't know. But she says, they're out of wine, Jesus. I know who you are, right? Okay, so he's like, why do you involve me? But he's his mom. This is his mom. So she's like, just, just do something about it. And so he's like, okay, Mom, my time has not yet come. But the mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. This is my, this is my boy. You need to do what he says. Okay. Nearby stood six stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. I slowed down on that because I wanted you to notice what stood by. Six big jars, okay? They're standing there. And they're the kind used for ceremonial washing. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And so they did that. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Did you catch that? That's stinking amazing. There was water in the jars, and now it's wine. It's like walk out in the hallway, go to the drink machine, push the button, and it's Dr. Pepper. That's just not normal. It doesn't just happen, but Jesus does a miracle here. It did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had become wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drew, drawn the water, they knew. Then he called to the bridegroom and asked, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine for now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. Now, there's a lot we could say about this. I could probably take an hour to just teach on this passage. There's so many cool things about, about miracles, and we could talk about miracles, and do you believe in miracles? Really? 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 Well, yes, I believe in miracles, and I think there's a lot of great reasons why we should. However, that's not the point of why I told this story today. There's more to it than this. Uh, but first, let's understand what's going on. So Jesus has come. He's gone to Cana in Galilee, and they're having this wedding. And the first question is like, so what? They run out of wine. Like, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, we've run out of, like, drinks at my house before. Like, we didn't cry about it. We didn't have to do miracles. We just said, well, we're, we're out of tea right now. Just drinking water until somebody makes tea. Why is it such a big deal? In this culture, wine was symbolic of something very important. Uh, one way of saying it is wine is symbolic of joy and life. 
I mean, it represented a part of their culture. And when you're having a good party, man, everyone needs to know that there's good wine to drink. That means that this party is full of life and joy. That's part one. Part two is this. Wedding ceremonies were no joke. Man, these people would have a wedding ceremony for like days and days and days. Now, you take a wedding ceremony for days and days and days where people have expected to come for great refreshments, including wine that represents joy and life, and then you end up having no more wine. And days and days and days without wine. What that says about the party is that this party has no joy, and this party has no life. This party's a bummer. And so it would have been very important to the people of the house that that this would happen. But that's not even the point. What I want to draw our attention to is this. When Jesus decides he's going to show his glory to these servants and to his followers, which, by the way, every time Jesus does a miracle, every single time, it is because he wants to reveal who he is, reveal his glory. Sometimes we look at the world and go, why doesn't God just fix everything? God's very specific and and directed at how he uses miracles. And so at this point, this is the first miracle he does, and he does it so that his, his closest followers, his disciples, could go, oh, wow, that was amazing. So he looks across the room, and he sees these jars. What type of jars? They are the jars that are filled with water used for ceremonial cleansing. These are the religious jars. These jars are the type of jars, so what happens is you go to this ceremony, you've been out in the world, you've been doing all your whatever mess, sinful stuff in your life, but the wedding ceremony is a sacred time. So when you come into these people's house, they've got this ceremonial water. It's kind of been blessed for you. And so what you do is you'll, you'll wash with it. And there was a ceremony for washing yourself as you came in the house, and then you were ceremonially clean, and you were then allowed to come into the home and participate in the wedding and whatever. And so this is the religious jar. What does Jesus do to it? He turns the water into wine. It's something that we didn't notice right away, but I guarantee you everyone in the house would have seen what happened there. Might not have kept them from drinking the wine, but they would have gone, whoa, that's weird. There's wine in the religious jars. Some of you might have come from a Catholic background, right? In the, in the, in the Catholic church, they've, they've got a lot of times this little fount of water in the Catholic churches, and that's where the holy water is, and this is where you'll have kind of a ceremonial cleansing. Same type of thing. This would be equivalent to me going into the Catholic church in town, which I would never do, by the way. This would be really disrespectful. But for me to go in there, dump out the water, fill the container with malt liquor, and be like, you got to fight for your right to party. Like, who does that? I think when Jesus does this, he begins this campaign against something that becomes one of the biggest enemies that he faces. And do you know what that enemy is? Religion. In fact, I'll state right now that Jesus is the enemy of religion. That might strike a lot of us the wrong way right now. Like, wait a second, because I kind of was coming to church because I kind of was like, that's religion and I need religion in my life. And what you're saying doesn't make sense to me. And I'll get to that. So stick with me. But I want to go through a few more stories to see how this is continuing to be, continuing to be true in Jesus' life. Because the Jesus who came to restore wrecked lives is the enemy of religion. Next story, John chapter 2, he goes to the temple. Basically, their version of a church building. And so in this temple, the Jews would go, and they would do a couple things. There are two that I want to point out to you. One thing they would do is go and make sacrifices. The sacrifices would set them apart and help to purify them from sin. And it was part of the ceremonies they did in the Jewish religion. And so he went in there, and and it was a good thing. In fact, God ordained this this sacrifice thing. What people would do is they would bring their animals that they were going to sacrifice, a dove or a lamb, and they would carry this thing from their hometown, many times days and days away from the temple. And when they would get there, they'd be 
so glad that they were there to offer their sacrifice. And they would walk up to the front gate, and there would be a man standing there. And at this time in history, uh, history tells us, and, and what we learn from the Bible, that this man would stand there, and he'd go, oh, you're here for the, uh, the sacrifice, huh? Yes, yes, sir, I'm here for the sacrifice. Where do I go? Uh, first, we're going to need to inspect that lamb you've got there. So if you just bring it over here. Quick inspection. Got to get the tags right and everything. Yeah, good, looking good. Ooh, yeah. I was afraid of that. What is it? Well, uh, you see these black spots here? Yeah, that's, that's not going to fly. Yeah, that, that, lamb, that lamb's kind of messed up, so you're not going to be able to use that lamb. I just walked all the way. What do I do? Well, have I got a deal for you? Back over here, I've got this pen full of lambs that have been inspected and have been approved. And today, for a low price of $19.95 plus shipping and handling, I will give you one of these lambs. And what choice does the person have? So they buy the lamb. The guys, what tradition tells us in history uh, infers is that the guys would often take the lamb from the person. Be like, yeah, here's your lamb. Hey, Bob, go do the paperwork. And take that lamb, put it right back in the pen with the other ones. It's crooked. It's messed up. It's cheating. And that's, that's one of the things people came at the temple to do was to offer the sacrifices. And they were being cheated by people. Another thing that you had to do at the temple was pay a temple tax. Temple tax, also something that was okay. Totally cool with God. God was like, look, this is the way the priests are going to earn their living. And so it's fine. We're going to have the, the little temple tax going on. But, but here's the deal. We're going to have this. Uh, the, when you would come, the same guy comes to the door and says, I'm here to pay temple tax. And the guy at the door goes, yep, all right. Ooh, yeah, I, I see that you've come from uh, another region. You're, you're from Tyre. Yeah, well, we don't take tire money here. We actually just use temple money here. And the exchange rate is a little different, uh, but it's okay because I can exchange that for you right here. It's just a nominal fee, just a small fee, no big deal. And they charge a fee to exchange the money, and these guys are making bank while other people's hard-earned money that they have brought in good faith to the temple was being exploited. You see what's happening. It just gives you a snapshot of the, of the spiritual culture of what was going on while Jesus was around, especially in the Jewish nation. And so let's just look at John chapter 2, verse 13, and, and this tells the story in brief. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found some men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at a table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all the temple from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers, check this out, and overturned their tables. He was like, boom. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So Jesus walks in, he totally flips out on these people. He goes all Indiana Jones with, and he's flipping tables over. Why? Why, why the righteous indignation from Jesus? Why does Jesus go postal on these guys who, who are the, 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 the temple guys? Because the Jesus who came to restore lives is the enemy of religion. These guys were asking something from these people that God was not requiring from them. And it never stops with Jesus. It actually gets way worse than what we're seeing here. Like another story that we see would be in the book of Luke, chapter 11. When Jesus gets invited to this Pharisee's house, and the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders back then. They were maybe kind of the, the preachers, the pastors, whatever. They were kind of the, the religious overseers of, of, of the people there. And um, so Jesus was invited to this Pharisee's house. And, and when he arrives, the Pharisees are shocked that Jesus doesn't wash his hands before the meal. Now, granted, that's a little bit non-hygienic. But it's not against God's law here. And so let, let's see what the Pharisees saw in, in Luke eleven thirty nine through 45. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside 
Make the inside also. But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of the garden herbs, but you neglect justice and love. Can I explain that very quickly? Like one of the, one of the rules was, was a tithe. You need to bring a tithe to back, back to God's kingdom and, and, and invest it in what God's doing. And that's kind of, they, they practice it then, we practice it in Christianity today. But he's saying, look, you know what? You, you give a tenth of everything. You even literally go out and cut your little mint leaves out of your herb garden down to a tenth and give that to God. But you neglect justice and mercy, like your heart is dirty. Who cares what you're doing on the outside? You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue. That's like their uh, kind of religious council. You want the most important seats. And the greetings in the marketplaces, hey there, Pharisee. That's the Pharisee. Do you know that's the Pharisee? Yes, I am the Pharisee. They loved all the prestige and the accolades. But he says, woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, it insults us. Which is kind of, it's hysterical because it's like, you think Jesus didn't know he was insulting them? Like, yes, I know I'm insulting you. What I'm trying to tell you is stop. So why? Why is Jesus such a rude dinner guest? Like if someone comes to my house and does that, I'd be kind of like, um, you didn't like the spaghetti? Because I thought it was good. Like, why does he act this way? Why not just get up and wash your hands? Like, okay, you want me to wash my hands? Fine, I'll wash my hands. Because he's trying to make a point. Why does he call out the Pharisees? Because the Jesus who came to restore wrecked lives He's the enemy of religion. He wants the change to be in here, not just out here. All right. I think we need to answer some questions here. There's a handful of questions that, that kind of get stirred up. Because, you know, what? I realize I, I debated whether or not to even kind of come across with the exact phrase, Jesus is the enemy of religion. Because that is heavy, man. That, that is really heavy. And, and it might hit you guys the wrong way. And it kind of shook me a little bit when I thought about it. But here's what I want to do. I want to define some things. And I want to point out to us why I believe this is seen true in Scripture and true in what the church today needs to be. So the first thing is like, Chris, what do you mean by religion? Because check the encyclopedia, I'm pretty sure Christianity is a world religion. True, true. This is what I mean by religion, and this is kind of how we see the Bible define it. Religion is this. Religion is man, human being, or woman, person, standing here on earth, reaching up stretching out and clawing my way to God by doing all the good things I can do, by being in all the ceremonies I can be at, by attending church and all the places that I can attend church, by saying and being and doing and all those things so that I can look right and, 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 and act right so that I can make my way up to God. That's religion. Religion is a checklist. Religion, religion is going through and saying, I have measured up. Christianity is something different. If religion is us reaching up to God, which by the way, we're not tall enough, and we're not good enough. We can't make that stretch. If that's religion, Christianity is God saying, oh, wait, wait a minute, little buddy. Let me come down to you. Let me, instead of giving you a whole list of things that you can never live up to, let me come down and build a relationship with you and let you know, I realize you're not good enough. I recognize the fact that you fail. I understand with my whole heart that though you want to do the good that you want to do, you may often do the bad that you don't want to do, and sometimes you might enjoy it. I recognize that. Religion is us reaching up to God. Christianity is God 
reaching down to us. You see the difference? That's how I'm defining religion when I say Jesus is the enemy of religion. What does religion mean? Religion oftentimes has been said, religion is about the have-tos. The have-tos. I have to go to church. I got to read my Bible. I have to go to small group. I have to give money to the church for some reason. I have to attend everything that they do. And they're busy. They keep me busy every night of the week. I have to be nice to my neighbor. I have to be a good parent. I have to be this and that. It's about the have-tos. Why? What's the checklist? You're trying to build your blocks up tall enough. It's it's about the have-tos. It makes sense. That's religion. Christianity is about the get-tos. I get to go to church. I get to have relationships with people. I get to make friends with people that I don't even know so they can know about the love of God. I get to help people who are in need. I get to be a good parent. I get to uh, read my Bible. I get to give money to God's kingdom. Why? So that I can invest and make his dreams for the earth come true through my resources. I get to do these things. It's not about the have-tos. It's about the get-tos. People have said that religion is spelled D-O, what I have to do. Whereas Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Jesus has paid the price. He's done the work. It's just up to us to live faithfully and follow him. See, the truth is that God loves unconditionally, but religion teaches us that God loves us on condition. If you do the right things, God will love you. If you're good enough, God will love you. If you measure up, God will love you. And who wants to be in that relationship? Who wants to be in that place where, uh, where, where it's a relationship where it's one, one directional? And i got to do everything, and maybe God's just getting his kicks and giggles out of what I do. Christianity is about a relationship. He says, I want to do this with you and for you and side by side and picking you up when you fall down and disciplining you when you make mistakes. But understand, I'm not going anywhere. It's a relationship. Which leads to a second question. Why are people drawn to religion? I think that's a fair question because the truth is, uh, it sounds like a hard thing to sell, right? It'd be hard to find buyers for that product. Uh, here's the thing, here's the thing. You're going to spend your entire life trying really, really hard to do something that you can never achieve, okay? And you're going to feel miserable while you do it. You want to do that? But oddly enough, so many of us have signed the dotted line on that. Yes, that's what I want to do. That's what I do. I want to be good enough. I want to be strong enough. I want to be smart enough. I want to measure up. Why do people do religion? Well, honestly, because it kind of makes more sense with everything else we see in life. Because what happens with everything else we see in life? We, we earn everything else we see in life, right? Look at the house you live in. You earn that house. You're paying the rent. You're paying the mortgage. You earn that. What degree do you have? You earn that, right? What job do you have? You work hard to keep your job. And so that's what we see. And so it makes sense why when we think about God, we would think, well, I've got to earn God's love. It's awesome that that's not true. Because God wants to give it to us for free. And, uh, and the, the cool thing is that we can't connect with God by ourselves. But when the word became flesh and made his dwelling, his house among us, we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only from the Father who is full of grace and truth. Grace. I was quoting that verse from earlier. Remember 1 John 1.14. Grace is getting something that we don't deserve, but we get it for free. So awesome. And Jesus, Jesus is our bridge to God. Third question. So I said, what is religion? Why do people turn towards religion? Third question. So what's so bad about religion? I mean, it's a good way, right? People have been doing religion for a long time. We should, we should embrace that. Why would you say God hates it? 
why, why did Jesus make it his enemy? Well, first of all, like I said, it doesn't work. That's why. Th- that's, that's what's so bad about religion. It doesn't work. You can't pile the boxes high enough. You just can't be good enough. It, it, just, it just doesn't work. But beyond that, I think what's so bad about religion is that it creates hypocrisy. It, 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 is, a, it is a breeding ground for hypocrites. Let's read another verse. Uh, Matthew 23. Um, we're going to be in verse 25 through 28. In Matthew 23, it says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Jesus is talking to these leaders again. You hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The word hypocrisy or hypocrite is actually a word that comes from uh, the theater back in ancient Greek time, and, and, and an actor would be called a hypocrite. Why? Because the word hypocrite actually means to put on a mask or to wear a mask. And these actors would wear a mask because I'm going to play the part of whoever. And I'm going to wear that mask. And I'm going to play another part. So I'm going to wear a different mask. And so that's why when we call someone a hypocrite, we're saying like, man, you're a fake. You're wearing a mask. Right? So that, that made sense in that context. In fact, uh, it's possible that Jesus was the first person to ever use the word hypocrisy in relationship to something outside of theater. Which is, which is pretty interesting thought if that is true. Because it's just like, man... He hit the nail right on the head. Because how often do we feel like we're walking around with masks on? I can't be who I really want to be or who I really am because I feel like i got to put on a face. i got to put on a front. i got to prove something to somebody. It happens in church all the time, and it's sad. Why and what's so bad about religion? It doesn't work, and it creates hypocrites. Religion encourages hypocrisy because it defines a set of behaviors I have to do. And it's very easy for us to use those behaviors to cover up what's actually going on on the inside. In most churches, in many churches at least, people quickly learn how to look spiritual, how to walk the walk, how to talk the talk, brother, sister, so good to see you. Praise God, hallelujah. And then on the inside, man, it's like, what's going on in there? It's a sad situation, but it's easy to get drugged into. I know I've been guilty of it myself. And this person who calls him or herself a Christian is to some degree or perhaps entirely fake. And here's the thing that I love about God. You might say, okay, fourth question, What's so bad about hypocrisy? Okay, because we're doing the best we can, right? Granted, granted, you're doing the best you can, but I want to show you a different way. I want to show you a way that we, as a community, can grow closer to God, closer to each other, and be better people because of it. What's so bad about hypocrisy? Well, hypocrisy prevents God's dream for our lives from happening. And it also prevents God's dream for the world from happening. God has this big dream for our lives and this big dream for the world. And hypocrisy stands right in the way of that. How many times can you say that word? I've said it like 400 times. If you ask people what God wants most for our lives, some of the answers would be solid. And they'd be answers like, I think God wants us to be good. Would you agree with that? I would. I think God wants us to be holy. I think that's true. Holy means to be set apart for God's purpose. I I agree with that. I think God wants to be perfect. That'd be a great goal, right? Sure. But more than holiness and and perfection and absolute goodness, which are all goals that God wants us to strive for, it's not just holiness, it's wholeness. Do you hear the slight difference in those two words? 
God isn't just calling us to holiness. He's calling us and he's, he's inviting us to wholeness. Wholeness means I am complete. I'm put together and I am the same on the inside as I am on the outside. When God creates something, he creates something that is the same on the inside as it is on the outside. You might have noticed this little table of fruit I have here. And here's the thing. It's a great illustration of God, uh, God's creation. This is a banana. Does it look like a banana? If I were to peel this thing, what do you think's on the inside? Anybody? You ever eat a banana before? What's on the inside of this thing? A banana. Yes, you are correct. This is an apple. Looks like an apple. Smells kind of like an apple. A little bit like Walmart. More like an apple. You cut it open, what's on the inside? An apple. This is a grapefruit. What if I took this grapefruit home from the store and I was like, oh, grapefruit. I love grapefruit. Cut it open. Watermelon. Oh, man, God, you pulled one over on me again. Oh, I hate it when God does that. That's not how it works. When God creates something, it's the same on the outside as it is on the inside. He wants us to be the same all the time because when he creates something, he wants to make it whole and complete. And that's why he doesn't play tricks with us with our food. And that's why he doesn't want us to play tricks with ourselves, with our lives. Because here's the deal. I am a child of God. My name is Chris Woolard, and I'm a child of God. I'm created in his image, and I have screwed up my life utterly. I have sinned. I have disappointed my parents and my wife. I have not been a perfect father. I'm a screw-up. But by the grace of God, I've been made whole. Because he connected me with his love. And you can cut me open, and on the outside, you'll see a dude that's had messed up mistakes and a wrecked life. And on the inside, you'll see the same thing. But as a person, I'm whole because God came down to me and said, let me tell you about my love. I forgive you, and I want to teach you a better way. That's wholeness. My life was a wreck. But then I met Jesus. And God wants the same thing for you. Wholeness. That is his dream for each of us. Hypocrisy stands in the way of wholeness. Because what it makes you do is look good on the outside. But on the inside, you're dead man's bones. God says, stop that charade. Take off the mask. Just be you and get better at being you and let me love you through it. That's the first reason why hypocrisy just isn't good. The second thing about hypocrisy is that it gets in the way of God's dream for the world. You know what God's dream for the world is? God's dream for the world is that he could love people into a relationship with him. Did you catch that? It's kind of a weird phrase. That God would love the world into a relationship with him. Not program them, not force them, not guilt them into a religion about him. But love them into a relationship with him. And there's a huge question there. How in the world is God going to love the world into a relationship with him? He does it with people like us. We love the world with the love of God, and they see how we're acting, and they see how we respond to life's problems, and they go, I want that. I want to be made whole also. At our church, we've got these three phrases we use all the time that we want to, uh, we, we have, there are goals, really, is what they are. There are goals as a church, and there are goals as individuals. And I want to say them as often as possible, and I hope it's something that you can internalize and it's this, we are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. God-chasing says, I put God at the center of everything that I do. I'm chasing him, I'm pursuing him with my life. It's another word for being a Christian. I'm a God-chaser. I'm grace-shaped, 
being grace-shaped is like, you know what? The world brings us all kinds of mess that shapes us and puts us in all kinds of different shapes. Things like, you know, our opportunities or our lack of opportunities, our successes and our failures, our, our, the things that we're good at, the things that we're not good at. All these things shape us, and that's what we're left with, this funny-shaped person life. That's what I have. That's what you have. That's what, that's what we stand before God with. But God says, it doesn't matter what else shapes you. I want you to be shaped by my grace and my love. So at Venture, we say, look, this is not a place where you're defined by your past. You're only defined by the future that you have and the present that you have and the love and the grace of God. We're God-chasing, grace-shaped. And the third one is spot on for today. We're love agents. How does God's goal and dream for the world of loving the world into a relationship with him come true? Through us. Through love agents. For example, next Sunday, February 9th at 6 o'clock, a group of us are meeting at McAllister's Deli on College. There's a room that we've reserved back there, and we're coming in. You can buy your dinner there, and you come sit back with us, and we're kicking off for the first time ever our city team. Our goal is to start this team called the city team that is going to help us as a church kind of corporately partner with organizations in the city that, uh, that, was, that we've researched and we know we can get behind their vision and then they're, they're credible people, organizations like Nourish NC, whose goal it is to put food in the bellies of kids who are living in food insecurity. There are hundreds of kids in our, in our county who go home and don't know if they're going to eat a meal again until their next free lunch at school. We're going to partner with Nourish NC. The YMCA has a similar vision for people in poverty. We've got another organization that we're going to kind of unveil next week on Sunday. I want to invite you to come and be a part of that. I hope the room is big enough for us all. So we can go in there and say, hey, I want to be a part of starting this city team. Why? So we can be love agents. So we can help love the world into a relationship with God. And that's why hypocrisy doesn't work. Because we can't be love agents if we're wearing a front and on the inside we, we're dead man's bones. Jesus, the Jesus who came to make wrecked lives whole, he's the enemy of religion. And, and he had to face that enemy. He had to face that enemy, and over time, over time, he goes to these Pharisees, and he goes to his followers, and he says, listen, this is not what I want from you. I don't just want the checklist. I love what he says in the one verse we just read. He says, don't, don't neglect the former, do the former and the, the latter. You need to do the good things that I'm asking you to do, but make it from your heart. He battled that. The truth is, we're going to have to battle it too. I battle it. You're going to have to battle it. Because a relationship with God will quickly turn into religion. You just want to do something on the checklist to get it out of the way until Monday. Fight religion as your enemy. Stand in front of it and say, no, I want to be shaped by God's grace. I want to live as a love agent for him. I want to be a God chaser. I want to live for Jesus. I want this to be about a relationship with him. And if you realize that your approach to God and Jesus and Christianity is already like religion, my prayer for you is that today you'll recognize that you don't have to live that way. And that you would move to a place where you don't need your enemy anymore. Like I moved to Wilmington to get away from my lawnmower. You move to a different state of mind where you say, man, I, I don't need that anymore. I can do so much better with my relationship with God. You need to throw away religion. You need to understand the unconditional love that God has and that Jesus came for you and a relationship, not a religion. That religion is actually an enemy and that you would move to a place where you don't need that enemy anymore. Because Jesus didn't come and die so that we could have religion. He had something much better in mind, a relationship with God that can happen because of his unconditional love. You notice how I said that like three different ways, four different times? I want you to hear what I'm telling you this morning. I want you to hold me accountable for that as well. 
This is about a relationship for God. The awesome thing about relationship is this. There's always room for growth. Um, there, there's gro- growth. There's room for excitement. There's room for discovery. There's room for adventure. I've been married to my wife for almost 11 years now. And it's been an amazing journey with like a thousand different phases. Okay, and through these phases, we've had, we've experienced, um, you know, growth, and we've experienced pain, and we've experienced joy, and we've experienced trials, and through all of this, our relationship has continued. The same thing is true about God. No matter where you are with God, maybe you're someone who came in today because you saw something that said, this is church for people who don't like church, and I kind of came because I don't like church, and I want to see what even that means, and you heard something today, I want to invite you to this relationship with God, and you know what, maybe it's just like the first time I met my wife, you just need to kind of get to know him a little bit little phone call, talk to somebody else who knows him, see what it means to have this relationship. Maybe you've been in it for a little bit longer. Some of us in this room have been in this relationship for weeks. You're new at this. Some of you 10, 20, 30 or more years. Still room for relationship. Just like a marriage. You can continue to grow. You can continue to fight for it. You can continue to love it. And it's done. God has done the hard part. Here's what I want to ask you all to do. Right now we're going to have this time of communion and reflection. And we do this every week. Communion is just a chance for us to take a look at a piece of bread and a cup of juice that reminds us of, of the tangible thing that God did for us by, by giving his life on the cross and, and connecting us with God's love. It's amazing. But we also have this time of reflection intentionally so that we can take a chance and say, what am I doing with myself right now? What does it mean for me to follow God? What does it mean to go to church? And how's my relationship stacking up with God? I want to pray for you, and then I'll kind of give some instructions on how we do communion here. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Man, as we look at these lives of people whose lives were wrecked, and, and we see how your connection with them just brought them wholeness. God, I pray right now over this room that every person in a folding black chair or whatever chair they're sitting on right now, they'll find wholeness in you. They'll seek holiness, they'll seek goodness, but in you they'll find wholeness and completeness because you've done the work. And God, just right now, as we take this few minutes of reflection, just just fill this room with a, a peace that helps us find clarity in what we need to do with you. We love you so much. Thank you for your love and thank you for coming down to make it easy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.